where did we get this idea that the youth will save us? I mean, what a burden for them and what a cop-out for us. I mean, I understand the inclination, of course. I, <laughs> I'm there as well. I mean, I remember marching about various causes when I'm younger, and now I march less. You know, I'm busy and I'm tired. I get easily distracted. Well, it's just easier to give some money and cross my fingers and hope that these young'uns will get this mess figured out. And of course, you know, young people, they can be brilliant and ambitious and capable of extraordinary things if we let them, if we support them. I just don't want us to forget that we too, all of us, need to be a force for change. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them, a book that has shaped them. Denora Getachew is the CEO of DoSomething.org. What a great name for an organization, DoSomething.org. It is an organization that helps youth engage for social impact to make today and tomorrow better places. But the foundation for Denora's work doesn't begin really with youth, although it begins when she was young. It's more fundamental than that. It's about democracy. Even though my mother would never actually tell me who she voted for, right? So she'd take me to the booth. In New York, we used to have these old school boots, right? And you'd like pull the lever and she'd basically invite me in, but then be like, turn your back because it's my private vote. But you need to know that you have to do this. So she was modeling the behavior, but respecting her own voter privacy as opposed to the world we live in now where people have their ballot selfies, if you will. It went from theory to practice to reality when Denora was a young, pregnant teen during high school in Harlem. You know, I didn't know at the time that I was going to become a civic activist, let alone a democracy ninja. But when my school leaders tried to encourage me to transfer high schools because they thought my pregnancy would be a distraction to the school community, that's when I found my voice, right? And so I like to say that I'm highly coachable and I'm a rule follower, right? So like the juxtaposition of that and being a ninja is a little bit hard. And so since they provided the advice and recommendation, I consider this other school, I said, well, I should at least consider the school. And I should say at the time I was a high achieving young person who was, you know, set up for academic success, had parents who were investing in me, was on track to be college bound, but had made a personal choice to have a baby. And so I went to visit this school for pregnant girls. And what I learned very quickly is while they would afford me childcare, there was no academic rigor or opportunity that was going to be afforded to me there. And so the civic spark was lit in me finding my own voice to advocate, to stay at home, stay in my the school I had already been in, and to be able to remain there with my peers and have access to more rigorous academic opportunities. And so that's where the journey began, right? I think seeing it through from then, my career has built upon that, but it's that formative moment for me of realizing that someone didn't believe in my opportunity for success and that I had to learn how democracy works and how to leverage it for my own personal good. So you can see Denora's facing off against authoritarian adults who thought they knew what was best for her, but she had an ally. She had her mum on her side. So often when I tell this story, my mom says like, oh, you turned yourself into this larger than life hero, Denora. And I'm like, great, mom, you get credit, right? My mom gets a lot of the credit for instilling the right values in me and supporting me throughout that journey, right? So she, when I said to her, this isn't the fit for me, mom, what do we do? She supported me in figuring out what we do. Is it appealing to the school? Is it appealing to the superintendent of the schools and actually understanding how to navigate the hierarchy and having the courage, but also the moral and financial support to do that? 
as Denora and her mother were working their way through the bureaucracy, they were sparking what in many ways would be a guiding light for Denora's future, for her sense of purpose. So we wrote the letter to the school, had the meeting with the principal, wrote the letter to the superintendent, and were able to navigate the bureaucracy, which can be daunting in and of itself, right? I think often people aren't courageous because when they see the hurdles they have to overcome, they rather just take the path of least resistance. And the good news for me is that I'm always going to take the path of the most resistance because I believe in getting to that systemic change, right? And I believe in knocking down those hurdles and obstacles that are holding us back. Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. The fact that we seem to need a democracy ninja right now in 2021, that's worrying. I really wanted to ask Denora, what is it that people are afraid of about democracy? I think, right, and I will get to this when I read the two pages, I think we're afraid of who has power Mm. and how do they use that power, right? So throughout my career, I'm an attorney and a policy advocate, and I've spent my career actually dedicated to advocating to eliminate structural barriers to participation, Mm -hmm. right? So think about things like early voting, right? Why do you only get to vote in certain states on election day? What's that about, right? Like, and what if something happens on election day? You get sick, you have to work late, and then you don't get to go vote, right? Like, why do we have barriers like that in the way? Things like automatic voter registration. The government knows who eligible voters are. They know who citizens are because they've showed up and interacted with a government agency in some shape or fashion. Why aren't they automatically registered to vote? If you don't want to vote or you don't want to be registered, you can opt out. I think democracy is a complex political system that many people haven't been educated to understand. And so I've also spent time in my career working to bring civics education back into schools so that young people learn about democracy, like that democracy is demystified for young people before the barrier to entry exists, right? Because if you haven't been taught, especially if you're a young person from a historically marginalized community, if you haven't been taught about democracy, you think that that's an expensive proposition that doesn't apply to you or that it's put upon you as opposed to existing completely Mm -hmm. in service of you as a citizen. How do you think about power? I mean, Mm. it's coming down to the nubs of it, which is like who's in power and who wants to remain in power and who do we not want to have power. But power is one of those elusive, invisible, slightly intangible things. I'm wondering how you talk about power in a way that can make it feel graspable. Right. A lot of that work I did in my time at Generation Citizen where we were working to get civics education back into schools. Mm. The interesting thing about civics education is like our education system in America was actually predicated at the public level on ensuring that we had a continuing and thriving democracy and we needed to educate people to grab that mantle and continue it, right? Because it is complex. The we, the people can't exist if the we don't know they're a part of the people, right? Mm -hmm. And power is both elusive and feels finite. And I think actually in this moment, I was struggling, I want to be honest, Michael, with what book (laughs) I was going to read from, because there are so many books that I'm drawing energy and life from in this disrupted moment. But America at its core and democracy as it has been instituted in America has always been about power and Mm. who can access it, right? So you think about the founding of America, it wasn't my ancestors, right? The democracy wasn't created with them in mind, though the constitution was written in a way that it could be adapted for me right. to be, have some of that power. And I think the moment we're living in right now, Michael, is genuinely about a fight for the soul of who has power in America right. and who is an American. What we need to do is understand and teach every citizen 
how that democracy works and that mm-hmm. it is all of our responsibility to shepherd and steward it so that we can share power equitably. Right. And I think that's what we're struggling with right now is like, who has the power? Why do they have the power? And are they willing to redistribute power so that we can all coexist and thrive, right? I think that's what's at stake right now in this moment yeah. in America. And part of the reason why we stopped sh- teaching civics education in schools, I believe, is because we wanted to shift away from a society in which the focus had been about that democracy and that power and have fewer people understand how to leverage democracy for good, right? We see young people protesting and marching in the streets, right? And they want equity. They want transformation. They want systemic change. Sometimes they don't know that the vehicle through which they're going to achieve that is democracy because no one's told them that, right? Like, so they think the act, the tactic they're engaging in in that moment is the and all be all for their yeah. change they seek. Yeah. There's so much there, Denora. I mean, <laughs> I know, just the light <laughs> subject like power and democracy, I know. Michael. You know, I mean, I've walked streets and protests, and in some ways, being on the street is an expression of powerlessness mm. because it means that you're not behind a door where other stuff happens. Mm. And, you know, I grew up in Australia where voting is compulsory. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like you just. To your point, government know who's eligible to vote. You're expected to vote. You're fined a minor fine, but you're fined if you don't vote. So watching particularly what happens in the States, which is this systematic exclusion of people from the ability to vote, it's not that Australia doesn't have power imbalances and hoards power in certain circles, but (laughs) they do it in a different way, I guess. Anyway... This is such a rich conversation, but let's talk about the book that you've chosen for us. And, you know, I love hearing that you struggled to pick the book because that's part of the joy for me is watching people who love to read go, there are so many books. <laughs> Which one do I pick? And, so, and this is not a prop. This is my office. I sit in every day and there are all the books. And yet yeah. there are more books that I was like, <laughs> can't go up on the shelves. I hear you. So I came on board. I didn't tell you much about Do Something. So I want to take one minute to do that before Please. I jump into the book came on board as the fourth CEO of Do Something. And you mentioned, yeah, we're almost 30 years old. We have Mm -hmm. been in the business of activating young people for social impact for almost three decades, which is powerful. Do Something was founded in 1993 by Andrew Hsu and Michael Sanchez with the goal really of just, I mean, as the name is like so synonymous with, stop complaining, young people, just do something. Mm. About whatever cause it is you care about, there is something you can do to improve your community, whether it's in your park, whether it's in your school, whether it's in your home. And so I think what has been so powerful about joining Do Something as its fourth CEO just about six months ago is that we have this ability to communicate directly with young people, to hear from them about the causes they care about, and then to build sustainable campaigns and programming that activate them to get engaged. My hope is that the work of Do Something continues to evolve with young people, right? And that yeah. we continue to know them and meet them and activate them, but also catalyze their impact short-term and long-term towards that systemic change, right? So that's what I'm focused on as our fourth CEO is like, we're living in a 21st century social justice movement and young people are. I think in many respects, you hit the nail on the head. They're marching in the streets because they feel powerless, but they do have power. And our work right. at Do Something has to be to show them that there are other ways to harness that power. And so right. the book that I chose, great segue, is Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel oh, Wilkerson. Again, struggle, struggle. And I'm still, mm. you know, I've read much of the book, not all of the book, being candid, just because I started it as I was starting this new role and it's taken over my life, this new role. <laughs> of course. 
in the midst of a pandemic and having three children, two of whom are adolescents. Mm -hmm. But the reason I chose this book is because I think if we're going to talk about the future of America, Mm. the future of race and the intersectional reckoning that we're living through in this moment, we need to look at the root cause of how of the systems on which our society was built. And how do we disrupt that in order to get to the equity and the justice that young people, but all of us are seeking? Yeah. You know, this has been a book that has kind of been a bit of a beacon over the last few years in terms Mm. of this kind of reckoning is a good word around kind of race and how it works. So I'm delighted that you've chosen it and we haven't heard from this book before. So that's exciting for us. I'm surprised. There's been a, a wide range of books that have been read from that have come at race in one way or another, but I've been waiting for this book to show up because it's Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) it's time to hear from it. How did you choose the two pages? You know, it's interesting. (laughs) I'm a lawyer, right? And so I get very wonky quickly. I highlight, I tab. So I was prepared ostensibly for this moment. Just needed you to invite me to the podcast, Michael, you to say like, come read the book. (laughs) And so when I was deciding which two pages, it really was for me about one, looking through all of my highlights, right? And two, thinking about where we are in this moment and in society, but also even as I examine my role at Do Something and realizing that we needed to get to the root cause, right? Mm. And so there's two pages at the start of the book that really where Ms. Wilkerson does a great job of framing the problem that we are facing society-wide mm-hmm. and then defining what this caste system is. And so to me, it's like, a North Star of like what we have to dismantle and what we're up against. And so those were the two pages of like where we needed to jump in and have a hard conversation. It's a brilliant (laughs) setup. So let me hand it over to you, Denora, to read these two pages. I'll be listening carefully. Okay. Starting, do I'll tell you. So again, cast the origins of our discontent by Isabel Wilkerson, um, starting on page 16. We in the developed world are like homeowners who inherited a house on a piece of land that is beautiful on the outside, but whose soil is unstable, loam, and rock, heaving and contracting over generations. Cracks patched, but the deeper ruptures waved away for decades, centuries even. Many people may rightly say, I had nothing to do with how this all started. I have nothing to do with the sins of the past. My ancestors never attacked indigenous people, never owned slaves. And yes, not one of us was here when this house was built. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it, but here we are, the current occupants of a property with stress cracks, embowed walls, and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or joists, but they are ours to deal with now. And any further deterioration is, in fact, on our hands. Unaddressed, the ruptures and diagonal cracks will not fix themselves. The toxins will not go away, but rather will spread, leach and mutate as they already have. When people live in an old house, they come to adjust to the idiosyncrasies and outright dangers skulking in an old structure. They put buckets under a wet ceiling, prop up groaning floors, learn to step over that rotting wood tread in the staircase. The awkward becomes acceptable and the unacceptable becomes merely inconvenient. Live with it long enough and the unthinkable becomes normal. 
Exposed over the generations, we learn to believe that the incomprehensible is the way that life is supposed to be. The inspector was facing the mystery of the misshapen ceiling, and so he first held a sensor to the surface to detect if it was damp. The reading inconclusive, he then pulled out the infrared camera to take a kind of x-ray of whatever was going on. The idea being that you cannot fix a problem until and unless you can see it. He could now see past the plaster, beyond what had been wallpapered or painted over. As we now are called upon to do in the house we all live in, to examine a structure built long ago. Like other old houses, America has an unseen skeleton, a caste system that is central to its operation as are the studs and joists that we cannot see in the physical buildings we call home. Caste is the infrastructure of our divisions. It is the architecture of human hierarchy, the subconscious code of instructions for maintaining, in our case, a 400-year-old social order. Looking at caste is like holding the country's x-ray up to the light. A caste system is an artificial construction, a fixed and embedded ranking of human value that sets the presumed supremacy of one group against the presumed inferiority of other groups on the basis of ancestry and often immutable traits. Traits that would be neutral in the abstract, but are ascribed life and death meaning in a hierarchy favoring the dominant caste whose forebears designed it. A caste system uses rigid, often arbitrary boundaries to keep the rank groupings apart, distinct from one another and in their assigned places. Throughout human history, three caste systems have stood out. The tragically accelerated, chilling, and officially vanquished caste system of Nazi Germany, the lingering, millennia-long caste system of India, and the shape-shifting, unspoken, race-based caste pyramid in the United States. Each version relying on stigmatizing those deemed in to justify the dehumanization necessary to keep the lowest ranked people at the bottom and to rationalize the protocols of enforcement. A caste system endures because it is often justified as divine will, originating from sacred texts or the presumed laws of nature, reinforced throughout culture and passed down through the generations. As we go about our daily lives, caste is the wordless usher in a darkened theater. Flashlight cast down in the aisles, guiding us to our assigned seats for a performance. The hierarchy of caste is not about feelings or morality. It is about power, which groups have it and which do not. It is about resources, which caste is seen and worthy of them and which are not, who gets to acquire and control them and who does not. It is about respect, authority, and assumptions of competence, who is accorded these and who is not. Wow. Thank you for reading that. I haven't read this book yet, but just the title alone and the brilliance of transferring it from India, where you associate caste and this millennia-long experience, which has proved impossible to shake, and then to bring it to as a lens to current American society is such a brilliant framing. What's the burning truth at the heart of this for you, Denora? When I read this, I got chills, Michael, mm. right? Because it goes back to where we started our conversation. It's about power, right? Yeah. So I told you I was going to come back to that as a theme. <laughs> yeah, It is about power. Yeah. And so what's interesting for me is I'm a native New Yorker. I was born and raised here. 
and during the peak or the kind of peak one and peak two of the pandemic, I tried on living outside of the city for a little bit. I had never lived anywhere else, Michael. Right. Raised in Yonkers in the Bronx, <laughs> went to high school in Harlem. Exactly. And I moved to the Burbs. It was like fish out of water. Yeah, totally. It's a whole new world out there. <laughs> whole new world out there. It involves your car, fun fact. You have to drive everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But jokes aside, what I learned is that I was in a new system, right? Mm. Like, so I was living in a majority white community where I didn't see myself. Right. And everybody saw me. So I couldn't even go to the store, Michael, without someone noticing. There's a new black woman in our midst. Where did she come from? She seems interesting. <laughs> right. And that was so striking for me, right? Mm. And so, you know, we fast forward. I'm back in New York City, thankfully, because this is my home and I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. But I live in Harlem, right? Yeah. A historic community mm. in New York and worldwide, but also one that in many respects embodies the caste system in America. Right. And I have two young daughters, one of whom is incredibly conscious and is... They're both thoughtful, but in very different ways. And one of my daughters asked me a question, right? Because we formerly lived in a predominantly white community in Manhattan, and now we live in a predominantly black community. And so on the walk to the bus, let's just stipulate that this was at 6.45 a.m., <laughs> I am being asked questions about why this community mm. is dirtier, why this mm -hmm. community seems to have less resources, and why this community does not resemble either the white suburb we lived in or the white neighborhood we used to live in Manhattan. Yeah. And immediately having read this book before, I was explaining to my daughter America's caste system, mm -hmm. right? I was explaining to her how groupings of people are residing together in an under-resourced community because of the way in which historically we've made decisions as a society about how to allocate resources mm -hmm. and who should benefit from them and who shouldn't. Until I read this book, I don't know. I mean, she's a genius, right? Isabel Wilkerson. Because like conceptualizing this yes. and addressing the root cause of America's racial wrongdoing, the original sin, as she calls it earlier in the book. Mm -hmm. I don't have those words. I didn't write the book. But it made it crystal clear to me what we're working against, right? So last year in America and worldwide, we had what we called a racial reckoning, right? And it was mm -hmm. this buzzword and everybody was protesting and marching in the streets. But was it just about race, right? I've been talking more intentionally about an intersectional reckoning because it isn't just about race. Yes, race is one of the original sins and the root cause, but so is gender inequity, right? So in caste systems, it's also about power. Sure. It's about able-bodiedness. It's about mm -hmm. gender orientation. There's a reckoning about all of what it means, but the root cause of that is about who has power, mm -hmm. who should have access to power. And in this moment, the term reckoning being used as a way to say it's time to examine and then redistribute that power. And so the reason that this book and these two pages in particular resonated with me was about that very concept of power and who has it and who doesn't. Nora, how do you navigate what I'm guessing, I'm making a presumption here, which is you're both kind of your inside and outside power. Mm. Like you're a CEO, you're an educated woman, you're a lawyer, and you're also a black woman, and you're also working in the nonprofit sector. My guess is that you're both part of the establishment and not part of the establishment, a little bit like when you were talking about being a pregnant high schooler, and you're like, I'm a rule follower. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm also a pregnant, you know, and a high achiever at school, and I'm also a pregnant girl at school. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious to know how you 
navigate that tension? It's a daily tension, right? So a book that is in my bookcase, right, is The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. And in the book, he talks about this double consciousness of like, what does it mean to live in two identities at once? And how do you reconcile that, right? Because yes, on its surface, being a CEO of a company and, you know, being a lawyer means I have power. And yet, to Ms. Wilkerson's point, this system wasn't built for me, right? right? And the institutional barriers exist to keep the power with a certain class of individuals, be them educated, be them wealthy, be them honestly, majority white, right? And so how do we redistribute that power is something I'm facing every day, right? I see it in my work to fundraise to run a nonprofit, right? Is someone going to take the call from the Black woman CEO before they take the call from the white male CEO? Maybe in this moment, right? Like I think, you know, respectfully to Black women, we're hot, we're in right now, right? So you got (laughs) to ride the wave. But jokes aside, I also won't be tokenized as a Black woman. So it's great that you want to let Black women lead in this moment, but is that sustainable? And have we set up the infrastructure to ensure that I am successful and the Black women who come behind me will be successful going forward? I don't think so. Right. And so it's hard because I'm both, you know, metaphorically trying to crack some glass ceilings yep. while also realizing that institutionally the caste system hasn't been broken yet, right? So yeah. for example, in America, so we just received the results of our census, right? One of the lessons learned from that census is that Other minorities, whether they are Asian or Hispanic, are growing in population share in comparison to African-Americans, right? Well, what does that mean for that caste system? Does it mean that all people of color in America see themselves as aligned and have a desire to disrupt and eliminate the caste system in favor of all of us having more power? Or does it mean, which Ms. Wilkerson talks about in the book, that certain races will decide at all costs will not be Black people? in America. Right. Right. And so they will step on our back or try to surpass us in order to ensure that they don't fall to the same fate. It is hard, right? Both as you navigate alignment, coalition building, living your daily life, right? It is this Mm. double consciousness of doing the right thing in service of, in my case, democracy and young people. And then how do you coexist with that tension of the systems not being built to set me up for success to do that? I'm very struck by your comment you made, which is like, you know what, black women are kind of of the moment, but I will not be tokenized. In your work at Do Something, how do you navigate the tokenization of youth activism? Mm-hmm. Because that feels like something that you can like go, go for it, young people. You're doing such a good job at being angry and worried and Greta Thunberg or some version of that. Right. And if you create a little space where the noise can happen, then you can just get on with maintaining the status quo and the power. I'm curious, I mean, I know this this is another impossible question, but I'm just wondering how you think about that. That is exactly the burning question for me every day, Michael, right? I inherited an almost 30-year-old nonprofit that could exist in creating these activations and campaigns that gave young people something to hold on to, right? then that spark would be lit. Yeah. In a 21st century movement for social justice that is happening out loud, publicly, viscerally, it can't, do something cannot just be that, right? We are actually Mm. in the process of going through a strategic planning examination to figure out how we truly know young people and are not activating them to contribute to the noise, but are actually activating them 
for systemic change. And that's what we see young people craving, right? Like in this moment, what we know to be true is young people are incredibly skeptical of structure, systems, government, and yet want systemic change to happen. Mm -hmm. And I won't even go down the rabbit hole of like social media and slacktivism and how that contributes to the noise, because that's a whole fifth conversation. Yeah. Do something can't just exist to activate young people to scream into the wind, right? Mm-hmm. There's a meme that was not, I don't think, built for do something, but I've <laughs> referenced it often because I've seen it before where it's like a bunch of people screaming out their window saying, do something, <laughs> then what, right? right? If I am effective as the CEO of this company, we will not just be activating young people to scream into the wind. Mm. We will be activating young people to be the champions, the stewards, And the people who bring in a democracy that is more accessible, more equitable, more representative, that means we have to activate them to understand that democracy is for them, right? And they have to, in some respects, even if they distrust the system, learn how to leverage the system to get the change they seek. And I think that's not what's happening now. Across the board, we are in a very noisy and disruptive moment and a very uncertain moment, right? Because we have activists like the Greta Thunbergs or or the Parkland students of the world who are pushing for transformative change. And the system is not designed to embrace them, to hear their voice, and let alone to redivide the pie and give them some power. If I am effective, me and my colleagues are effective at do something, we are helping young people understand how to get the pie redivided to give them some power, to push towards that systemic change. Do I want to raise awareness? Do I want to educate young people about all of the ails of society? Sure, I do, because that is the first step in that transformational journey, Mm -hmm. but it can't be the last step. Do something. And I think many nonprofits in this moment are having this existential crisis of like, what do we do to meet this moment to ensure that we are being most effective and most and are catalyzing the spark that has already been lit by young people? You said you're you're going through strategic review and do something to go, how what needs to be different? So this will be an unfair question, but because <laughs> I like asking these impossible questions, I'm seeing you sweat, but it's like, what do you need to stop doing? Hmm. Honestly, we need to stop doing things that create noise. Mm. We need to stop running campaigns that just get young people to click and like and heart something. We need to know young people better hear what they want us to be doing, and then build that in service of young people. And that's hard, right? Like there are fiscal constraints that pull against that. There are operating and business norms that pull against that and create attention there. And there's just the, we live in a noisy society, right? So even the notion of holding on to young people or any person's attention for more than five seconds is Mm. harder. But what I see in this moment is, and I keep talking about this and I was reflecting earlier, like I need to, no pun intended, do something with this, but like (laughs) I have gained my COVID clarity, right? Mm -hmm. As I've lived through this crazy disruptive time, which I hope is the last time like this in our lifetime to know what I will and won't do, will and won't prioritize short-term and long-term. I don't think society writ large has done that. I think by and large, we are so disrupted, confused, uncertain about the past and the present and the future and trying to hold on to what we know. Because it is a very untethered moment, right? Where you're like, what am I doing? What day is today? Where am I? On some level, we have to be willing to let go of that, the former, and decide in this moment, 
what are we building towards with intentionality and with purpose? Yeah. I'm excited to do that in partnership with young people because they're raising their hands. They're unapologetic, as one of my good friends and mentors, Dr. Daniel Mosley, would say. They're unapologetic about being the beneficiaries of the change they seek in their lifetime. Like they're not like you and I, Michael, who are like, if we could just keep working at this for the next decade, we're going to get that bill passed. They're like, we're going to get the bill passed tomorrow. Maybe that on some level is naivete about understanding how the system works, but the urgency, right? The fierce urgency of now, if you will, is that they are willing to lean into that. And so we have to decide, are we leaning in with them to build what is the future as opposed to just holding on to the past? Who do you look at as a current role model for people Mm. who are managing to create disruptive, sustainable activism? Of my peers or for young people? Just, I guess, anywhere. (laughs) I'd take anything. (laughs) Young people or our peers, you know, who do you think could be a a role model or a mentor for do something? It's a great question. I mean, I think there are all of the unseen role models and mentors for Do Something. And that's what I'm keeping a pulse on is the people who are not only marching in the streets, but are in the capitals. And those are young people and adults, right? Demanding change on systemic issues that are really getting to this power question, right? So when you think about education, criminal justice, economic mobility, we are living in a moment that I think has created the greatest level of economic inequality that we will have experienced, at least in my lifetime. Right. And it happened like this, right? Yeah. It happened in the blink of an eye. And what I think is so powerful about this moment, because we have access to one in a positive note, because I often get like, Denora, you just bashed social media. Are you a Luddite? Do you not use the internet? And I'm like, no, I do. But I want us to understand how to leverage social media mm-hmm. for good. And what it has done is given us an incredible amount of information, technology yeah. at our disposal at all times. What we have to do better at as a society is like distinguishing real news from fake news, Mm -hmm. avoiding misinformation, right? We're running a partnership right now with the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases around connecting the dots between medical misinformation and getting young people vaccinated against meningococcal disease. If we can take the best attributes of social media and our digital era and combine that with the activists who are pushing for the transformative sustainable change, that's when we're going to find it. So I don't think I have to point to one person, Michael, because I think we are living in a moment where there are so many of those people. Mm. It's just so noisy. We can't hear it or see it all the time. Yeah. I think there's some truth to that. You know, there are so many people doing so many interesting things and they're just busy doing it rather than, you know, Instagramming it. That's just like, look, this is me rolling up my sleeves and just making progress on a specific, small, important project that will make the world a bit better as a result of that. That's right. But it's hard to see that. It's hard to see the forest for the trees in this moment because it is such a disruptive and noisy time. So you don't know that Michael is off toiling away at the thing he cares about because he didn't ask you yet to join him, but he should, right? And so where do you give your time and your energy and how do you, I think, build more intentional coalitions towards that change? I love this conversation. I'd love to keep going, but for everybody's sake, I, I won't. (laughs) <laughs> but let me ask you this as a final question, Denora. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation? Hmm. Such a hard question. My honest answer is the fastest growing demographic in America, at least, is young people. Mm. 
And if we truly intend to create a more equitable and intentional society, we not only have to center youth voice in that, we have to equip them, we have to arm them, we have to activate them to be stakeholders in this democracy. And so let's not use age as a pretext for not giving over some of the power. Let's instead be clear about if we truly believe in, and I do because I'm a democracy ninja, if we truly believe (laughs) in this democracy, what does it take to make sure that we the people will continue to be the North Star for how we're getting to that we the people? So I have various forms of power. And that means I'm asking myself in response to Denora's question, well, what would I need to do to center the youth voice? It's not just about giving them more, more time, encouragement, resources, activation. I mean, of course, all of that helps. It's not just about shining a spotlight or following and giving thumbs up on social media, although that's good as well. We have to subtract as well as give. We, I mean, I, have to examine how much of the center I hold, how much I'm willing to give up and make way for them. How do we decenter ourselves and step aside and invite them in? Sometimes doing something means just getting out of the way. If you enjoyed my conversation with Denora, I hope you did. Let me recommend a couple of others that might spark your fancy as well. David Robertson, who's a Canadian children's and adult author, My conversation with him is called To Read is to Change. This is a man who is a brilliant writer and loves books. He has such an interesting pick for the two pages that he reads. And the second interview I'd recommend is with my good friend, Dolly Chug. She is a force for good in the world. I love her to bits. That conversation is called How and Why to Be Goodish, which sounds a little kind of prim and proper, but Dolly, you know, she's just this beacon of joy and enthusiasm in life. So... You should listen to that conversation just so you can meet Dolly if you haven't done that already. If you want to find out more about Denora and her organization's work, do something.org and you'll find them on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, of course, Facebook, at do something. Please do support young people being activists. That is good for the world. Thank you for listening. We love all the support you can give us. Listening is support, don't get me wrong. But if you were then to forward an interview onto a friend, boy, I'd love that. If you were to give it a review or some ratings on your podcast app, that would be gratefully received. If you were to join some of us in the Duke Humphreys Library, our free membership site, that's great as well. But whether you do that or not, just know this, you're awesome. You're doing great. <laughs>